don't talk too much. Just talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John. And before we get into it, I've got to tell you about my friend John Scambato over at Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club Soda has been making the best artisan soda in the world for over 100 years. This stuff is amazing. I sell it in my pizza shop. I've been drinking it my whole life. You've got to try it. So go to YachtClubSoda.com. Check out all the flavors they've got. They've got blue raspberry, grape, grapefruit, root beer, uh, cream, orange cream, lemon lime, uh, pineapple. <laughs> they've, got, they've got so many. It's crazy. You've got to check these things out. Uh, they come in the uh, classic glass bottles. They're made with uh, real cane sugar. Um, this stuff is top notch. So go to yachtclubsoda.com and get some for yourself. Uh, also, I want to tell everybody about uh, the fact that I've got some new pizza art coming out really soon. Um, now that the, uh, the school year is starting, kids are back in school. Uh, I've got some more time on my hands. I'm going to be making a lot more pizza art. So please, please go to my uh, either my Instagram, which is Eric John Pizza Art, or uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Eric John Art. Uh, to check out all the new stuff I've got coming, as well as brand new NFTs coming in 2024, just around the corner. Okay, on the show today, uh, super excited to talk to this guy. I've been listening to uh, Matt Allen for a really long time on talk radio here in Rhode Island, um, probably more than oh, more than 10 years. Um, he's been on for a long time now, and uh, I've always loved his commentary. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite things to listen to in the car um he's got great takes on stuff and uh and and he he's just he just does a great job he's, it's a great show um and i definitely suggest anybody listen to it um and even if you don't live in rhode island uh you know matt loves to talk about philosophical things and cultural things that uh really anybody can enjoy you don't have to be local although of course he does talk about uh, a lot of local things so i'm really excited to have him on the show today matt welcome to the show Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Um, so, uh, man, you've been I've been listening to your radio show for a really long time. I mean, going back to when you were doing uh, nights with Maverick. Um, and I, I remember, uh, you know, I sometimes I'd find like find things to do where I could hop in the car, like run an errand or something just so I could <laughs> listen to like listen to parts of the show. Um, I like, you know, that. A, a, Especially during those uh, that that Bob Healy campaign in, in 2014, when I was oh, yeah. uh, I was I was you know involved with that, and uh, things were so hot on talk radio for talking about Bob, and, um, and I know you were you were always such a big fan of Bob. Um, you know, maybe that's actually an interesting place to start is um, is to talk a little bit about Rhode Island politics and and Bob Healy and the quirkiness of Rhode Island politics sometimes and. Um, what maybe 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 a good question to start with is what is your general sense of the sort of the state of politics in Rhode Island at the moment you know in compare in, in context of you know what you've experienced your your adult life you know it's um god the current state it, you know what's so funny is like i think it's the state of everything uh, is kind of similar right now. It always feels, I don't know about you, but lately, especially after the pandemic, everything is different. Um, 
at least my perception of it is maybe I always, I always sit there and wonder whether or not I'm losing my mind or if the world is lost there, it's mind. I'm not sure. Um, but it, it seems like everything's a facsimile. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of it, it, genuineness in the world. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it, you know, there's no, like I was talking about the, the, about this, you know, the congressional first congressional district race going on right now, the primary, everybody's just fake. You know, they, they just, the, the platitudes, like the, the it's the poll tested lines. Um, it's like, nobody has an original idea. Uh, you're almost afraid to have an, an original idea. And the guys like Bob Healy, who, you know, he had an answer for everything because he actually thought deeply about things and cared about the results. And it's just like, we're, we're constantly packed with people. I don't know if this has always been the way, but it just seems lately it's getting worse. And maybe my tolerance for the BS has gone down. I don't know. But it's like everybody's fake. Everybody's a, is a copy of a copy of a copy. There's no original thought, and it seems like they're more interested in the position, or excuse me, the title than the job. You know, like they just want the title. They don't want to run anything. They sure as hell don't want to be responsible for anything. Uh, but they want to control everything. And it seems like for what purpose, I have no idea. But and so I don't know if that's general. If it's, that's what you're looking for. Um, oh I mean, yeah, state, no, that's what I meant. For like, oh, yeah, I don't know if you're looking for like a state, like the partisan part of it. I just think the state's gone more left in general, and I don't know why that is. Um, but in general, that's my general feeling about almost everything, culture-wise, but politically, it's all the same kind of thing. It's it's like everybody, nobody knows how to be, how to create anything new, and so we kind of just retread. You look at our movies, right? Everything's a remake from. You know, the shows are, well, Frazier's coming back. Okay, we got to go grab all the stuff from the 90s and bring it back because we can't do anything new. We're constantly selling the drug of nostalgia. So it's just retreading the old stuff over and over and over. And that's how it Yeah, you know, it's, it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned that about being real, you know, and, and the fakeness of everything. Um, I had that exact same thought when I was reading. Um, I was reading the answers to a question. Someone had asked a question of all the candidates, and I, I – I apologize to whoever it was because I can't remember who it was. Um, maybe you remember. But the question was basically if someone was visiting Rhode Island from out of town, um, um, where, 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 where would you bring them? Like where would you take them in the state to show them a good time? Um, and, and one stipulation I think was you, you couldn't say the beach, right? Because that was too obvious. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the answers were, you know, aside from a couple of them, the answers were so absurd um, like uh, somebody, I think answered said they would they would show them around their local school district to show them the disparities of you know ed- education in the, in the community. And it's like, like, like who, like what kind of is that a human being answering that question? Like it, it's it's so mind boggling to me. Um, and you're right, Healy was so, uh, just so authentically himself. Um, he was. Do you think he was kind of like a Inter- intellectual dark web figure before the intellectual dark web existed. I, I like to think he would have really enjoyed that um, that whole moment. I think he is too original for them. <laughs> really, that's that's think, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think even they they have their patterns, right? I think I think Bob Healy would have been an amazing podcast host, or at least like a co-host to a podcast, and. He would have fit in for those with those guys, I think, but they would have they would have clamored to have him on. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah. He was 
I mean, he was the intellectual dark web before it was a thing, and he did it the hard way. Like, he stood up in front of people and lived it every single – it wasn't, like, a thing for him. It was just, like, I'm being me, and do you, that's me. Do you remember the moment – there was a moment in the debate when he was running against Ramondo and Fung where um, the question was, what what's one regret you have in life? And his answer was – you know, they they the both the main can- candidates answered the question – um, and gave some BS answer. Um, and his answer was that he didn't regret anything that he, and that he felt like he lived a charmed life. And it was just, really? I don't remember that, but that sounds like him. <laughs> it was such, it was just such a like refreshing yeah. thing, you know? And, and again, it was, it was like, you got the sense that he actually was thinking about the question. It wasn't just like, Oh, okay. What's the, what's the best answer to this question? Or what's the political answer to this question? Like, what do I have to say, you know, here? Um, and, uh, what do you, what do you remember about that campaign most? Because um, it was a, it was a big deal at the time, uh, at least to me, and I think to a lot of um, dis- disaffected voters in the state, especially. Um, what do, what do you there remember? There was this about little that? bit of a well. I remember the aftermath after Fung lost. I got a call from some of his campaign people who blamed me for the loss, <laughs> and I had a lot of people hated me after that. Um, because, you know, Gina Raimondo was my fault. And because uh, I, you know, I, I got I cut so much crap for that. Um, so I remember that part of it. But with Bob, it was interesting because I remember waiting and kind of watching to see if he would change. It started to become a possibility that he could win. Like people started to think something weird could happen here. And there were people like pushing it at him to get some advertising going, to raise some money to do all that. And I remember watching to see what he would do because, I mean, really, that's the ultimate test, right? If you sell your soul a little bit, and, and, and I don't even know that it would be him selling his soul, but to Bob it would have been, right? Of I course. mean, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have judged him if he's like, you know what, I can make some change here, so I want to try and win. But that would have been outside what he wanted. And so he would have had to, to change his standards in order to get it, to get the win the race. And so, um, I kind of watched it and just to see if he would. And I remember being fascinated by it and almost at some points disappointed that he didn't. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, if he just did this, but he never did. And he, and it was a, there was a time where I could think he was right on the edge of it. So I'm sure the pressure was immense, you know, it'd be like, ah, oh, do this. I could actually run the place. I could prove all the things that I've said and I, I could implement some of the things. And, uh, he never did. He was right on the edge of it, I think. It's just an instinct. I don't know, you know, I didn't talk about it or anything. And that's what I remember the most that he came right up to it and then he, he never did it. And I don't know how he ever felt about that. I don't know if he regretted it or not, or if he felt good about that campaign. Um I never Oh, he um he felt great about it. Um he felt like it was the it was his greatest political success was that campaign. And I think he often said that had he had another month or two, he thinks he actually would could have actually won. Um, Cause you know, he joined so late in that race, right? It was like September yeah. when the moderate party guy, um, Pult Spooner, I think uh, pulled out and he jumped in. So he basically had two months to do it. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he never can, you know, I remember, I think Arlene Violet had, suggested that he accept small donations and he just he didn't consider it for a second 
Um, what he did do, I remember, and this was really creative, um, and it actually led to a big social media moment for him uh, towards the very end of the campaign, like a few days before uh, the election. He said that if um, people wanted to hold fundraisers for him, um, as long as they donated all the money to charity, he would show up wherever it was, right, to, to the event. So I did that. I, had a, I did a bowling event where Bob came to the bowling alley and bowled with everybody. Um, and we donated all the money to the food bank. And I remember he came with me to the food bank and we presented them with a check and they took a photo and everything. And, uh, and this is like the internet's like sort of, it's there, but it's not like it was in like 2016, 2017. Right. And so I remember posting the photo on Facebook and it was like, it, it was a huge viral post. Um, and everyone was just talking about how, you know, while the other candidates are schmoozing, you know, here's Bob at the food bank, you know, with a $500 check, you know, three days before the election. And like people really, I think people really, you know, gravitated to that. Um, yeah. And I think that, like you said, if you had more time and I think that now I think he would be more set up, the guy was built for viral mo- moments. And if he had had oh, I more know of, a, of an online social media strategy, the guy would be in the national figure, I think. Um, but he just didn't, he didn't make it. It is if he had had a little bit more time and if he'd lived a little longer, I think like the, if he had done another election cycle with, with social media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, he would have gotten all the free stuff he needed to, to get, to get something done. What that is, I have no idea, but oh, yeah. he would have done better, I think. Oh yeah. So true. And you know, of course the great irony is, is that had he become governor, um, he would have died in office and then the lieutenant, go- you know, the, his whole point about the lieutenant the lieutenant governor position being uh, a waste <laughs> would have been sort of <laughs> proven uh, not to be the case because he would have died. And, so, and, you know, he would have needed somebody to take over. Um, you know what? But, I think he would have loved that. <laughs> it would have been the perfect. <laughs> it would have been great. He would have he would be in heaven laughing. Yeah. Well, I still think that there's a uh, part of him up there somewhere that's disappointed that um, that um, he wasn't uh, as to his wishes. Uh, stuffed and um, taxidermed, yes. right? Um, what a character. Um, you know, and, and, and sort of the whole discussion about Bob Healy, Matt, makes me think about um, voter apathy. You know, um, there's a lot of black-pilled people out there, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, at, at this point, would you consider yourself more black-pilled or white-pilled? When it comes to politics, um, when it, yeah, when it comes to, when it comes to, comes to the I'm, system, I'm yeah, like the system, like yeah. the system and, and fixing it and making it better and all of that. I mean, we have to, we ultimately I'm an optimist, right? Ultimately, because otherwise why live why live every day? I still have, I have hope. Um, but there's also freedom in kind of like giving in to and be like, yeah, okay, whatever. And just, cause you, then you don't have to sit there and think about it. It's there's a certain part I've reached a certain personal um, decision as of late that this thing I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm pretty resigned to the idea that it's going to have to fall apart before we can fix it. So, right. and I don't know what fall apart looks like. I don't know. I hopefully it's not too. I got a kid. I, I'm not looking for a disaster of any kind. Right. Um, but whatever it is, I hope it happens quickly so we can get by it quickly. Um. I hope this country comes to its senses. I really do. I, my attention has been totally focused on cultural things because I think the polit- political is a result of the cultural. And by cultural, I mean social. I mean social cohesion. 
um, things we can all connect and rally around, the transcendent. That's the stuff I'm interested in, philosophy and people, the psychology and how people think and how to reach them and connect with them. The political stuff to me is, like I said, because it's so fake and so it's boring. It's so boring. And all I can do is really mock it. So if I have to talk about it on my show, because I think people expect it to a certain right. extent. I don't want to, you know, my audience, they turn tune in for politics and they, they're interested in it. So I don't want to bemoan them. I don't want to bemoan that and I don't want to, you know, not do it. But because there's a lot of absurdity to it, but that's kind of the angle I'm taking is it's so absurd and fake. I'm just going to point it out. Um, but I like the X's and O's and like the the strategy of it. I, I just don't care. Because are, you I baffled don't, I think by, are you baffled by people who are really like just really like fascinated by the X's and O's of politics and the, and the ins and outs and endorsements and the moves and, and you know, because no, I'm, I'm, like I'm like you. I'm like you. I'm I have the same perspective as you on this. Yeah, I understand it. And I, cause I used to, I used to find it interesting and I thought it was, you know, it was an interesting chess game. But again, if at the end of the day, you have a bunch of corrupt people who, or people who aren't yet corrupted, but will be by the process, who are just feeding into this nonsense machine, it's like, I, I don't, I don't care to sit there and watch you plan a bank robbery. You know what I mean? I, I'm not, it, it might be interesting. You know, you watch Ocean's Eleven. It's an interesting. Oh, that's pretty cool how they figured out how to break into somebody's vault and take the money. But at the end of the day, there's so many bank robberies and everything's falling apart. I'm tired of watching it, and so I, I just I'm not interested in it anymore. I don't want to watch a bunch of fake people, you know, figure out how to manipulate other people to to accept their fakeness as a solution to a problem. It's just I I you know it's it, it's been a very strange time for me lately with all this stuff because I'm trying to get revved up and try to get interested in it, and I'm just not. It's, it's tough. It's weird. Do you, do you find it difficult to interview um, political figures on your show and, you know, not just call them fake to their face? I mean, cause obviously you, you have to be sort of tactful with how you talk to the, these people or else they won't come on your well, show. Well, no, it's, you know, I don't really care about that. Um, yeah. If you don't come on, don't come on. I mean, that's whatever. Um, but you know what it is? It's interesting. It's probably the campaigning is more when they're fake, right? So the campaigning part is the fake part. If you're running something, then to me, that's more interesting because then I want to I, – I, I'm going into an assumption that you have a plan for things. And so I'll have you – like I had the governor on the other day talk about his education plan. And if I'm going to sit there with you for an hour, I'm going to ask you how this is going to work. And I'm going to bring up all the points – in a way that it might not work. And, you know, pleasantly surprised, with, especially with some of the people we have. I mean, they have a plan. I don't I don't think it's going to work, but I, and I tell them that. I don't think it's going to work. Uh, or I disagree with your point of view on this, but at least I get one. I appreciate that with the attorney general, right? I disagree. We had uh, conversations about gun control issues and gun stuff. And, and I've told him he's wrong and I don't think it works. And he's defended himself and we just agree to disagree. Same thing with the secretary of state. They show up, we talk it out, I'm respectful, and I don't think they're fake. I just think they're wrong. The campaign stuff is really fake. Yeah, right. And <laughs> I wish it wasn't. But so I mean it's a little bit different. I mean, uh, so I, I don't know if you if I'm if you if, if I'm making sense, but oh, absolutely. absolutely. Things, a little no, you're making, yeah. You're making perfect sense, I think. And you know, um, you know, you mentioned education. Like, there's an issue where I wonder, you know, 
Do you think that the problem with something like education is way more cultural than it is systemic? Yeah. Yeah, because you'd I'd like to be able to blame the system for it uh, because then it would make me feel better. Right. But ultimately, uh, ultimately, I mean, the system is can only deliver what it can deliver. And I think part of the problem why the system doesn't work, why it's so expensive is because we're delivering way outside the mandate of what the thing is designed to do. And that's because our society is falling apart culturally. The only way our school system where you take a bunch of kids and stick them in a room to sit in a desk all day long to learn things works is if you have discipline at home where mom and dad live together, raise their children with the expectation that an education is a value that they need to get. And you can focus that the food is taken care of, the cleanliness is taken care of, the love and the caring is taken care of. And the only thing a kid has to worry about when they walk into a, into the school every day is learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And unfortunately, the degradation in our society has made that impossible. And so now teachers are, are tasked with, and school systems are tasked with all this other nonsense that they're just not capable of delivering en masse. You, you can't scale up love and caring. You can't scale. You, can, you just can't. Everything's going to be like you. Go, like, the perfect. The school lunch for me is the perfect avatar for the level of stuff that you can get in a school. School lunch is calories, not nutrition. Right? It's garbage. Right. It's not going to feed you properly. It's not nutritious. So it's the same thing that you're going to get in terms of psychological care, medical care. Um, you know, social work based stuff, the, the, the social emotional learning, all that stuff is going to be the same thing. It because not because the people there are not only well, there's some people there that are bad, but I think it's because you you're not it's not built. You can't do it. The bureaucracy cannot deliver love and caring to kids and discipline to children in the way that moms and dads can. They just can't. And what, so what just think? like you can't just like moms and dads are the best ones equipped to give the kids nutrition. It's the same thing. They know what the kids eat. They know what they have, have to have allergies. They know how to, so, you know, it's just, it's kind of like all, it's all the same thing. It's like, you can't deliver the specificity to the kids that they need. Moms and dads need to do that. And, you know, for a multitude of reasons, they just, a lot of moms and dads don't. And it's terrible. What do, what do you think the big culprits are when, as it pertains to, the cultural degradation, the breakdown of the family, um, you know, the, the moral decay, all that stuff. Like, what do you what do you see as being the 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 main causes of those things? Oh, how far back do you want to go? Um, as far as you want. I mean, I don't. I mean, what do I know? I, I just have a. I have an idea. I have some just some observations and things. You know, my generation. I was born nineteen seventy seven. I'm going to be forty seven in January. I am a Gen Xer and we were fed, you know, this idea that all the things that supplied us with the structure on which we relied to look at the world and to experience the world were a form of tyranny, right? So we don't need religion. And I fell for this stuff, man. Believe me, when I say this, I'm talking about me, okay? I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about what I saw. It was a restriction. It was old fashioned. It was something that um, we didn't need that we could figure it out on our own and there's other ways to do things. And, um, 
And so, you know, I think it started there where you, when you, you can't, human beings, what I could realize, and I think I'm right on this, I don't know. I don't, humanly, human beings are very bad at um, sourcing their own morality from within themselves. Um, I was, I think of morality like a, um, like a gym membership. There are very few people who are so very disciplined that they will go every day and show up to the gym and work out and hold themselves to a high standard. It's much different when you have people holding you accountable outside of yourself saying, come on, we need you to be here. We need you to do this. Let's get going. It forces you in the times of weakness to live up to a standard that you normally wouldn't. So if you start creating your own rules, you start creating your own exceptions. And I think that's kind of what, what, what has happened over time. We see it with the family structure. We see it with children out of wedlock. The fatherlessness in this country, I think, is a cancer um, that, that plagues specific communities, especially. Uh, people, you know, you look at the black community, they have a huge fatherlessness rate. And it's evident in all sorts of pathologies because where there's no fathers, there's no discipline. There's no... Uh, I never knew this until I read Dr. Warren Carroll's book, The Boy Crisis, where you know dads teach delayed gratification. That's it's literally delayed gratification is one of the top things that is a skill that children need in order to be successful later on in life. Besides IQ and conscientiousness and all this, it's like the ability to delay gratification, which is plan for the future basically, and and not act impulsively. That's everything. That's civilization. That's humanity. I mean, we plan for the future. You know, squirrels store away nuts. We store away dollars and food and and everything. You know, and all this. We plan for retirement. We and if you don't have that skill, then you're doomed. And then you act out impulsively. You 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 get it together with gangs. You, you're violent. You you don't think about the future. You don't think about the the next day. You're just always living the moment in your impulse. And that's kind of our society. We, we, we're just impulsive and we're all about the immediate gratification. And any standards we've ever had have been deconstructed the way you dress in public, the way, and nobody ever explained to us, myself included, about, or maybe they couldn't, maybe I just wouldn't even be able to hear it anyway, that these things are super important because they give your life structure, which then allows you to have the tools to do the things you want to do. So, in this weird, strange way, Discipline is freedom. Limitation allows for expansion. It allows you to, to freely walk throughout the world and to do what you want to do. Um, and, and, and my generation was sold a bill of goods that doing whatever you want to do and eschewing any sort of limitation on yourself was the way to freedom. And I think we're suffering with that as we speak. So that's a very long way to answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. Um, you know, and I'm I'm younger than you, but I'm not that much younger. I'm you know I'm uh, gonna be I'm gonna be forty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I was born in '84. Similar similar sort of things. So similar sort of upbringing, uh, culturally speaking. And you know, and you said something that you know I hadn't really put these pieces together, but you you said something in such a way that it kind of clicked because you talked about how um, politics. And government and the way government is run is downstream from culture. Um, and I kind of wonder That's if Andrew our, Breitbart, by the way, I stole that from him. It's his. Oh, his yeah, of course. Quote. Right. That was a yeah. classic Breitbart uh, statement. Um, yeah. But it's, but many people have adopted it because it seems undeniably true. And 
um, I wonder if it's the same with economics because, you know, you talked about delayed gratification and, um, you know, what in economic terms, like what you're really talking about is an issue of time preference, right? It's the idea of, are you saving money or are you going to, are you, or do you want to spend your money? Do you want something now or do you want it later? Um, and I find it interesting that, um, as we go along here and as we've gone along over the last 60 years or so, or even longer, we have an increasingly demand side economy as opposed to a supply side economy or, or, or a, a saving oriented economy. Um, do you think when it comes to economics and the economy, it's the similar sort of situation where it's the system is reacting to the culture um, or, or do you think maybe in that instance, the system, the economic system is driving the demand culture. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm really ignorant when it comes to a lot of economic stuff. I know the basic stuff. So, I mean, I don't know that I'm, you know, qualified to even comment Well, on you'd it. be surprised, Matt, um, how the, ba the basic stuff is in the common sense. Um, and, and if you look into Austrian economics, which is what I've mm -hmm. looked into a lot, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost all common sense and basic axioms and stuff. It's not math and trigonometry and graphs and all that shit mm -hmm. so well, go mean, with listen, your sense I, you know that, that's good uh, <laughs> but i mean it, it makes sense that the you know your inability to regulate yourself would, would translate into economics because you know, first of all if we live in a service-based economy now we're just mostly consumers then in order for businesses to thrive you have to get people to spend more than they save right you need them to go to restaurants you need them to go to to buy things, consumables that are that are perishable, you know, planned obsolescence. You need to constantly wake up, wake them up every day, convince them that the new toy is the most important thing to chase. Um, and so, if you're chasing that stuff, then you're going to be spending more money and maybe money you don't have, right? So, I mean, I think that's all part of it. I mean, uh, you know, debt. Uh, I mean, the, the average person couldn't come up with five hundred bucks in an emergency right now. Um, and, and then obviously, when it comes to fiscal policy with the government, they're going to do anything they can to keep spending, man. They'll just print money until the end of time. And because God forbid, they look at the people in the eye and say, we can't afford this. And so you either have to pay more in taxes or we have to stop spending this much money. And you show me one person, Republican or Democrat, that will ever be able to do that and not be you know, railroaded. Um, so I, I mean, and, and, or even be justified in it because there'd be 50 other things that go, well, we're going to spend money on Ukraine, but we can't afford to build a school. We can't do this. We can't do that. So, you know, it's all part of everybody wants what they want and they don't care how it's paid for. They just want it now. And I think that's all part of that, you know, whatever I want culture where there's, you know, our, my grandfather was the greatest generation type, um, a little on the cusp. Um, his brother, his older brother died in World War II. So I guess he's not technically, maybe he's that generation, I'm not sure. Um, he, he was too young for World War II by a couple of years. But that of that generation, everything had to be paid for, right? Everything had to be planned for. There was a price for everything. And that was assumed and understood and known. And, and I, you know, I watched my grandfather. He lives in the veterans home now in Bristol. He's 90, he's just turned 90, 93, 94. Wow, God um, bless him. Yeah, and he is—he's a guy that he would come to the come over your house or whatever, and just like pick up tools and start doing stuff, right. and not because <laughs> it was his obligation, but because it needed to be done. Like there were things that needed to be done, and why not him? 
So we just start doing it. You know what I mean? It was like built into him. I used to watch him do this stuff. I'm like, wow, like you just, just, it needed to be done. Why are you doing that? It needs to be done. Um, you know, it's, that's a cultural thing. Nowadays, it's like everybody's looking around as he was going to do it. Whose job is this? It's not mine. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. I think that all, I think it plays into economics too. So the immediate gratification, you know, I just want what I want. I have a need, give it to me, and that's it. You know, it, you're talking about your grandfather. It sort of it sort of makes me think about, you know, my own grandparents and that generation, and um, you know the the lack of elders in our culture in general and sort of the way they're treated in general nowadays is, you know, compared to when I was growing up and, you know, I, my grandparents were always around when I was growing up. And, um, I think that had a huge impact on me. Um, you know, and it occurs to me that I bet I, I would imagine most people, uh, rarely see their grandparents when they're growing up now. Um, whether it's, is that true? Really? Live, I, that, I just that, have a sense. I don't know. I, I'd love to look into it because I just have a sense. Most people I know, and this is anecdotal, obviously, but most people I know might see their grandparents or, or you know, might have told me that when they were growing up, they saw their grandparents, you know, a couple times a year on the holidays. Whereas, like, I mm. saw my grandparents, like, every week, almost yeah. every day. Um, yeah. Do you think our culture is really missing that generation right now, especially, and particularly that generation. Um, I had a professor, history professor on, uh, Jared Frederick, um, who he liked to refer to that generation as the hardiest generation, which I thought was a good mm. moniker. Um, how, do, you, do you think we could, we could really use some of that right now? Yeah, unfortunately, we're losing them, right? I mean, those people are, they're, they're very, they're at the age now where I don't know, they're at the age, I think they're all getting ready to be, to, to be done. And yeah. I don't know to what extent they even have the energy anymore. You know, they might be you know, up in a nursing home or something like that. Um, but I think the generation now that we're talking about, you're, you're looking at grandparents in some ways are probably raising a lot of their grandchildren, which is another tragedy. You do um, see a lot of that. You're right. That's that, That's yeah. true. Yeah. And I don't know that they have the energy or the care to do it. And plus, I think you're going to have what you're going to see is like people like myself, you know, I'm 46 and be 47. My son's 10. So I was 36 years old when he was born. Um, and so luckily, both my parents are still around. And so my in-laws, and he spends a lot of time with my in-laws. He's my parents on a regular basis just because we live closer to my in-laws. Um, yeah. And so we see each other on a regular basis, but they're older. You know, I'm going to be an older parent. And so if he has children someday, you know, whereas, you know, my grandmother, I think when I was born was like 47. <laughs> it's wild, isn't She was it? 50. Yeah, so like she's yeah, my grandmother's it's so around. crazy. She's ninety-two. She's so I'm you know I still have, I still have two grandparents. I don't think my son's going to have that situation when he has kids. Right. Um, his parents, you know, their grand my grandkids, if I'm ever blessed to have them, at the very earliest will be I don't know, uh, you know, I'll be like sixty something years old. Yeah, it's, it's a so interesting. So I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know what the next generation's going to have. You know what that that does is it's unfortunately we that we're we lacking wisdom in our society. Um, that only comes with time and experience, unfortunately. Do, you know, you you mentioned at the sort of at the top of the podcast about being a Gen Xer and being sort of sold a bill of goods. Do do you think the the concept of 
waiting to have kids and waiting to start a family and putting career first and all that stuff. Um, or that, you know, even the idea that, you know, things like marriage and kids can be prisons. I mean, you see, you see that sort of language, uh, thrown about a lot. I know I personally have felt like, you know, looking back, um, you know, I, I wish I had gotten started with that stuff much earlier than I did. Do you think that's also part of the, the, the culture that really needs to be changed? Do you think it'd be better if people actually started families earlier? I don't know. I mean, you don't want, here's the thing. You want people to get married, right? I mean, that's right. Well, right. And so let's assume that's a given, <laughs> even though we oh, can't, yeah, but yeah, if you're married, then go, yeah. I mean, that's, and you're committed and you're going to stay together and there's incentive to that and you're ready to, you know, work through the hard times and all that stuff. That's a given. Go early, man. <laughs> go early. And I you know there's a trade-off to that. You're not going to have the fun twenties where you're running around drinking like a lunatic, but you know what? At the end of the day, who cares? You who do cares? that and you have a lot it. of money. I know it. Yeah. You're just going to you waste know, your there, money, waste your time. And I really do think that there is something to the idea that, um, that, you know, having a solid family life is sort of like real wealth. Like it's a certain type of wealth, right? That it's hard to quantify, but like, you know, it's families that have four or five kids and, you know, they or, or even if you don't have four or five kids, you've got to, you know, I have two, you know, I have a ton of kids, but, um, and I'm done having kids. Um, you know, just having that solid family life is a form of wealth that you can't, you, you, you can't put a price on it. Right. And you can't, you can't quantify it really. It's, but it's something that's, um, far greater than any sort of monetary um, wealth you might accumulate. And that's important, obviously. You know, you need money to live. But um, I, I do, you know, it does seem like that's a part of our culture that, that um, you know, if there's nothing wrong with getting married younger and having kids younger, you can still work and still do things, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, just for funny. For me, it me. was uh, my parents, we had, they had four kids and neither one of them went to college and they struggled with, you know, with, my dad worked in in manufacturing, which then disappeared. Um, my mom we went moved moved from that kind of a job to they did. My my parents when I was first young, my dad worked in the jewelry factory all day. Then I remember him picking us taking us, and as my mother went to go waitress at night um, at a local restaurant, he would go and mow lawns for ladies down the road from us to make extra money. And then sometimes he would bartend at night when my mom came home. They were working two or three jobs at a time. We lived in an apartment on uh, Reservoir Avenue in Bristol, and then we moved up to this, up the street one to another apartment. I, my parents didn't buy their own ha- their own home until I was fifteen, so it was you know we we I don't know how much we actually struggled because I wasn't involved in the day to day financials, right? But it felt like we struggled right. to me, right. and I'm sensitive to that kind of thing. So maybe I was overblown in my head. I don't know, but. I'm just, I'm very sensitive to any sort of, um, my disposition and I'm, I'm a, I have a high, high, to- high antenna for, for uh, possible disaster. So it's maybe my nature is why I have my, po- the politics that I have, because I don't want anything to be up, 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 um, I don't like upheaval. So anyway, so I remember it being kind of like wondering if we were on the edge of disaster all the time. And that's the way it felt to me anyway. It might not have been true, but that's what it felt. So when I was, you know, whenever I was deciding about my life, um, I was like, I got to have a good job and a steady income and be stable before I have kids because I don't want to do that 
have that be the thing for them. Right. Right. But that takes time. And so you then trade financial stability for, like you said, the wealth of a family. And I wish I had more of the family than the other stuff. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, you, know, it's like, you know, and like, like you said, I think there, there is obviously um, a huge problem with, um, you know, uh, very, very young people who shouldn't be having kids, having kids, right. Who, who aren't married, but also yeah. like, you know, it, the idea that like, if, if even someone who isn't that well off, you know, if they're in their early twenties and they get married and they have kids, um, and you know, they've got four grandparents living local who can help out and they've got aunts and uncles who can help out. Right. I mean, it, it all of a sudden makes, you know, the responsibility of having those kids uh, a lot more feasible, right? Um, yeah. I, and uh, I really do think that it should be the mission of, of policy leaders to the extent that they can even impact this. The mission of our entire culture should be so that one parent can stay home, so people can live with one parent staying home and one parent working. I think we should really do that. I know it's not good for economic growth. It's not good for bottom lines. It's good for humanity. And any sort of policy where we can, you can implement, you know, in a free market sense that could advocate for that or make that possible. And that might take a lot of sacrifice. I'm not saying you have to live a lap of luxury, but if you could survive with food, shelter, and you know, relative, um, you know, be able to get around and all that stuff. Um, I think more people should look into that aspect as well. And I, you know, I, I that is something I, I had, to, I got that that ability just because of my schedule. Um, when my son was born, I worked at night and my wife is a teacher. So she'd work during the day and I'd be home with him all day until like two o'clock in the afternoon when my mother-in-law would come over and watch him for an hour or two till my wife got home. So he was, he'd never been in daycare and right. you know, he was loved by somebody all day long. You know what I mean? Um, and he and I have a bond that I, you know, I can tell you, I never had with my dad ever. Um, and that may change when I turn, he turns into an angry teenager and hates my guts, but, <laughs> but you know, he is, he and I are, you know, we're like his thieves because of that, I think in a, in part because of that. Um, so I just, you know, there's a lot, listen, it's tough. The world is a complex place and not everybody can do everything the, right, the absolute right way. But I just wish that we understood that there is a right way and that we all tried to aim that way. And to whatever extent we fall short, we fall short, but at least we're pointed in the right direction. You know, you know, you, you're, you're reminding me of something very funny. I, so, you know, how there's sometimes in your life where you have a, a laugh that's just like, you just laugh so hard that you actually remember it for years and years and years later, how hard you laughed oh, sure, at a yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, I love so, those. Okay. So you, you are actually responsible for one of those moments in my life and it has to do with you becoming a father. So now this could be a false memory because how old is your mm -hmm. kid now? About 10, 10, 10 or something. Okay. So this was 10 years ago, but I remember you telling a story on the air and I was driving my car, listening to, to you tell the story about your first father's day. Do you know where I'm going with this? No. I don't remember. Okay, so you told this story, and I, <laughs> I'm trying not to, especially now that I am a father, like it's even funnier than it was then. But even at the time, it was hilarious. You told this story about it was your first Father's Day, and I guess, you know, your son must have still been like a small infant, like not even like mm -hmm. you know nine months or ten months, but like 
a bit still yeah, a baby. November, so makes sense. Yeah, June. Okay. Yeah. So you told this story about your wife asking you what you wanted to do for Father's Day, and you said that you wanted to go see like the new Spider-Man movie. Mm-hmm. And your wife said to you that you know she's like Matt, you can't take a baby to the movie theater like that and, and you were like no i thought i would no no i thought i would just go like by myself yeah. <laughs> like so like fa- ob- father's one and they like and like it was so funny because her concept of father's day was like we're gonna do something together as a family and of course yeah. of course your concept of it was that i have a newborn baby like I would love to just go to the movies for a couple hours by myself. <laughs> and, and, and it was like, you were telling the story as if like your wife looked at you, like with this look of like, what, yeah. like what is wrong with you? And I, I just yes. remember I had to pull the car over cause I was laughing so hard at you tell this story <laughs> that I thought I was going to be a danger to the other <laughs> drivers on the road I was laughing so hard. And now that I'm a dad, I, like I remember, I remember literally on my first Father's Day after my first kid was born, I thought about that story. So, yeah. so I have to thank you for <laughs> telling that story because <laughs> because it, I had such a good laugh, and, it, and I always think of it sort of the sort of dichotomy between you know the differences between men and women, right? And and God forbid we yeah, yeah. we even mention right, of course, in this day and age oh, yes. that there might even yes. be differences, right? Is there um, such a thing? Is there such I know. a thing? So speaking speaking of laughing, um, yes. I want to talk to you a little bit about comedy and in, in particular um, uh, Howard Stern because I know that you growing up you were a huge Stern fan, yeah. Um, and um, I guess you know I'm really curious what like what happened to Howard Stern, Matt? Like what? <laughs> is it, like I'm assuming you don't yeah. listen to him anymore. I know that. Like no, I used to. I, I used to love listening to him. Time. But like, it seems like he uh, is the complete opposite of everything that he was that people like us liked about about or enjoyed about his show. Um, you know, whether it's the all the COVID stuff and everything. I'm just like, what do you do? You do you still listen to Howard Stern? Are you still a fan? No. No, no, no. You know, you know, who I'm a fan of. You know, who I listen to now who? is uh, uh, Doctor Laura on Sirius XM Radio. <laughs> Doctor Laura, like I the advice columnist. A, oh yeah, Doctor Laura Schlesinger. I have always listened to her when she was. When I, I was didn't younger. know she was still around. Oh, she's That's on amazing. Sirius. Yeah, oh, she's God. on. Uh, they, she has a great show, man. I'm telling you, I've been listening. I've listened right, to so, her for the longest time <laughs> as a kid. From, and from then Howard Stern I, to Doctor Laura. I used, That's quite I a to listen to talk radio. Yeah, talk radio since I was a child, right? So I, my whole life, and I used to listen to her, and I remember thinking, "Wow, she's really mean." And then, like after a couple of <laughs> months of listening to her, I'm like, "I love this lady." So when I rediscovered her on on satellite, I was like, "Oh, sweet!" And she's still very good, and I enjoy it, and I rather listen to her than Howard Stern because at least she's legitimate and it seems to be real, and he's. Um, He's completely sold out. It's such a it's such the he's one of the reasons why I even got into radio, right? Um, because I just what he was doing was so edgy and so much fun and so crazy that I had to be part of it. That I, not that I'm like him in any way, shape, or form, but I love the honesty 
And, and listen, everybody's allowed to evolve and change. I've changed. I've evolved. It's fine. What I don't like about it is when he censors his stuff. He's the censorship, you know, anti-censorship guy from the get-go. And now he, like, edits his shows. He cuts people out of things. He's changed, you know, he's politically correct language. I mean, this guy has completely I – mean, it's one thing to change, but don't change the past. It is what it is. Right. Um, that's the thing to me that bothers me the most. And on all his COVID hysteria, so many people, so many, I have lost so much respect for some people uh, as a result of their COVID takes um, because I just, they just, they it just, it was just such cowardice um, and, and a lack of, it was just cowardice. And I don't like cowards. I don't like, you know, it's one thing to not know and to be, you'll know, be, to be um, careful. It's another thing to be authoritarian. And, you know, so that to me is, I don't like that. And when you're authoritarian, you want to cut people out of life. You want to make it so that they can't go to bars. They can't live in polite society. You want to hold them. I think Stern even said one time you should hold people down and forcibly inject them. Oh, yeah. Or something like yeah. that. And I, he wasn't I mean, the only, he is, wasn't the only one, <clears throat> you know. That's a, that to, to me, that's immoral. And um, it revealed it a lot about it, uh, who we yeah. are. Right. Um, yeah, and you know what? And a lot of it's not people's fault. So I try not to get too angry with them, um, because I do believe that there's a part of us that reacts to pathogens on a genetic level, and so people who you would not think, especially people whose character it's completely the other way, I right. almost think, oh look, they're they're having like a deep seated lizard brain psychological reaction to a pathogen. Yeah. Right. You know, and you add fear so, to that, and you know, yeah, I mean, it's 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 literally the their based fear that they're coming out of their like their primordial DNA, right? right. So, yeah, I agree with that. People out, and, and I think there's a certain level of that, but there's a lot of this, the gratuitous stuff of people like cheering on individuals to be kept out of society, the the adoption of COVID passports and being all about it, and they, and it's just. There's a great um, video of a guy, I think he's an Australian comedian, who is like, you know, I would like to think that I was, that I would have been, you know, uh, you know, hiding Anne Frank. But you know what? Uh, they came to me and said, you need to, go, in order to go to the <laughs> bars, you need to get a shot. And, uh, you know, I threatened me with one month outside the pub and uh, Anne Frank's up in the, up in the, ca up in the, uh, the attic. Go get her. <laughs> he's like, I, yeah, right. I would have rolled over, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's really easy for people who aren't in that situation, right, to to say how they would have acted. Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, <laughs> that's a pretty funny example too. And I, you know, I think um, you know one of the things with the whole COVID um, experience, I think that was um, just really obvious to me, and I don't hear people talk about it a lot, but it was that moment before the twenty twenty election, right, where. Um, you know, it was still in doubt as to which direction the country was going to go in politically. And, you know, at that time, right, Trump was like the vaccine guy, right? Like he was pushing to get the vaccine out as quickly as possible. Right. Um, he was all about the vaccine. And I remember very distinctly every single elected Democrat, including Governor Raimondo at the time, saying how cautious we had to be about the vaccine. 
and how yeah. we yeah. needed to really look at it. And I remember she was going to, she was putting together a commission, her own state commission that was going right. to look at the efficacy of the vaccine and really make sure right. it was safe because it was, <laughs> you know, this Trump rushed yeah, yeah. thing. Yep. And then yep. literally like the week after the election, that was gone. That, that was all gone. Yep. The vaccine was the greatest thing ever created. And I just feel like I felt like, am I the only person who's noticing this? Like I, I literally felt like that. I was like, does no one see this? Yeah, it's yeah, it's such a great point. And um it's I don't know how that all happened, man. I really don't. I wish I it's did. Wild. I, I I mean, what went on during the pandemic with that kind of stuff? How people just completely and then what you know what's even more infuriating now is that nobody wants to talk about it anymore. Nobody no, wants no. to. I, I, if it was up to me, I would talk about it every single day because I'm yeah. so mad about it. And it is crazy. Like when you, you see the old videos and stuff now too of like, um, you know, them offering free French fries and stuff to people in New York, yeah, right? Or so like, gross. Yeah, or yeah. like the, I remember them releasing the, um, the diagram of your, of what your house should look like on Thanksgiving. And they had the little cartoon oh, yeah. Yeah. image of grandma in the room by herself. By herself. You know, and all that stuff. And it's like, especially now, it's so crazy to think about. Like, this is what was being, you know, pushed out there. It's wild. What do you what do you think about um, and this might be a good note to end on? What do you think about this new push now with this? You know, they're reinstituting mask mandates. Um, I think uh, uh, Lionsgate Cinemas is now requiring masks. Um, is that a I cinema think. thing? I think it's a studio, right? It's a studio. It might be a, maybe it's a studio. It might be a studio. Yeah, You're right. I, it's a but studio. Places that, are starting know, to actors. reinstitute. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not doing it. I mean, if if I think it's it's a couple of you know colleges because they're really they're, for smart people they're really stupid. Um, <laughs> somebody sent me an article from Zero Edge today that actually has a an email that was found obtained from I guess some old NIH records where Michael Osterholm, who's the a guy who people came to. Yep. Constantly during the pandemic. Yeah, I remember seeing it on uh, Rogan. Rogan. Yeah. Did you So he was all over the place. He was on MSNBC all the time, CNN all oh, the yeah. time. And so he was the head of the infectious disease department at University of Minnesota, I think it is. Um, and he sent an email co-signed by like other epidemiologists, I think it was six other people, to the CDC saying, your masking stuff is BS. There was a bunch of claims that they had on their website about yeah. about how masking would, would re reduce uh, severity of, of, of infection. Right. And he's basically going through and going, your mask, the, your, all your stuff you're saying about masking, and this is from 2021, is not supported by science. The science shows, including the Cochrane Review, that masking for respiratory viruses isn't effective. And why are you doing this? And, you know, he never came, I don't remember him ever coming public with this, but it was like an email that he sent privately to the CDC saying, listen, it's you're doing people a disservice. They're going to think that a mask is enough. They're not going to get vaccinated. They're not going to do whatever all the stuff that they wanted them to do. Right. And no, and, and the masking thing is so infuriating because it is just absolute BS. It's BS in reality. It's BS in experience, and it's BS on paper and the science. And and it's it's so so to me. And I, I say to myself, why are they doing this? The only yeah. answer to that is, is control. Right. And so that's that's why you see academia doing it because they like are they get little, off on it. They're little Napoleons. They love little, little yeah. dictators. 
They love, you know, pushing their little ideological. They, I mean, they've become shibboleths. The mask is a religious, is now a religious um, act. And so if you want to, you know, when you walk into a Catholic church, you genuflect, you do the holy water. It's just basically what it is in the new religion right. of, of whatever, you know, totalitarian science, you know, capital S science. Right. They are religious types and they're just pushing fabrications. And I cannot believe that the part that bothers me the most is that the kids, it doesn't seem like the kids even fight it. They just kind of go along with it. Yeah, We've I raised a it. generation of rule followers to the point where they, I mean, we would have protested at a drop of a hat. Um, they don't do any, they don't protest nonsense, you know, like misgendering somebody or something like that. Um, yeah, but put but this, this thing over your thing, face all day. They don't care. Yeah. That doesn't work. Right. <laughs> that doesn't work. And I know it. To protect you against a virus that's going to barely touch you. Well, it became a fashion statement too. That was the other thing. You know, people, <laughs> they're bedazzling them and doing all kinds of right. stupid, Which is crazy fine things. If with it's it. voluntary. You want to wear yeah, a stupid right. thing, go right ahead. And that's, and that's fine. really it. Matter of fact, that's really it. Right. I appreciate it. Voluntary? I appreciate it. If I see people wearing them now, it tells me a lot about the person and I stay away from them. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a warning sign. Like you see an animal with a big bright, bright, big bright red, you know, frill of some kind. It's probably dangerous. Just well, it's like if you see someone walking down the street on Ash Wednesday and they got a black cross on their forehead, you know, they're Catholic. It's sort of a similar. Uh, That's right. It's a similar yeah. thing. Matt, I got to ask you real quick. Um, are you going to are you going to start doing the podcast again? Because I was a huge fan of the podcast and I know you haven't done it in a, in a while. Um, no, in a long time. I was thinking about it. It's a time it. issue? Uh, I gotta, no, it's not a time. What it was, it was, uh, well, it became, the pandemic just took, uh, the pandemic psychologically took a lot out of me. Yeah. And I just stopped. I, I had a lot of motivation to do it. I was having fun with it. And honestly, it was, it was just became like, it, it was just like, what am I going to, I wasn't really interested in things. I was, I feel like I was fighting the other front, you know what I mean? Right. So it was like, right. It, I didn't have the energy for it anymore. It's hard to sit there and have before. conversations about other, anything else at that point. Yeah. At that point. So I, I really, I want to, um, but I, I, I want to do things that I'm interested in. And so those are a little bit, they're more difficult to come by, you know, um, because the people I want to talk to about these different things are, they're off the beaten path a little bit. And so, the things I'm interested in, I first have to educate myself on and understand that I have a good grasp of the things that I'm interested in um, learning about. And then I can talk to other people about those things so that we can have a good conversation. So I do want to do it. It's just a matter of when. Um, so, yeah, it's a time. Well, thing I'll, I'll be looking extent, forward but... to it whenever you yeah, uh, get you. back into it, Matt. I'll be listening. Uh, you know, you're How one do of the you people like doing who... it. I love it. I love it. You know, and yeah. I, I really try to look at it just as like. You know, I just like doing this. I don't try to get too caught up with the stats and it can be hard because they're constantly pumping them in your face and stuff like that. But I've really just enjoyed talking to people and I'm surprised even for someone who's just starting out with this. You know, I've only been doing it six months. Uh, I do only do it once a week um, that, you know, people are very willing to come on and talk to me um, and I'm super grateful um, and I've gotten to talk to some really amazing people people like you that i've listened to for so long on the radio um but really have, have never really had much of a chance to talk to uh it's a real treat and i've really enjoyed it um and uh, and i really thank you for coming on because this has been a really fun conversation i love the philosophical stuff i 
you know, I wish you'd bring back Philosophical Fridays. Uh, that was one of my favorite segments <laughs> on the show. You know what's funny um, is that night. It was what it was. It felt more intimate at night. I don't know. It was why. different. It's it was different. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I enjoyed that. It was like, it was like a, a fireside uh, chat. Yeah, it was like that. It was more. It was more. It felt more like it's like like a bunch of people hanging out, friends and people you could trust. Yeah, and it was kind of renegade. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it, and it was like um. You know, nowadays it's like you never know, you know, how your words going to be used against you, and it just it's it's a little bit more guarded during the day. Cause yeah, you're be on top, right. you know, a little bit more. It was a little more free flowing. That's kind of what I liked about the podcast too, um, right? Because you can have a good conversation, and, and really the BS goes away. You, know, you have a little bit of formality when you first start talking to somebody, but once you start getting into like twenty minutes, past like fifteen twenty minutes, of yeah, it goes away. Yeah, and you're just having a conversation, and I think people Man. like that. So, oh, they love it. Yeah, they love it. And I think that's why podcasts have taken off for sure. Um, Matt, tell people who are listening uh, just where and when they can listen to your show. Uh, every day on W, every weekday, excuse me, on WPRO from noon to three. Check it out. You can listen to us online. Uh, you get the WPRO app or just go to 997wpro.com and you can listen to the show there. Um, check out the whole day. Uh, everybody in the lineup is it's all live local, which is a very rare thing to have in radio these days. And, um, I think we have some fun. I try to make it interesting. I try to do things that are a little bit different than other people do. Although some days, you know, there's a topic to talk about and you talk about that. So, um, and it's, uh, it's always fun and I appreciate anybody who wants to tune in. Matt, thanks again, man. I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you doing it. This is the just listening podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.